Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Okay, um, here we are. It's Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. Yeah. I have an announcement to make. Mm-hmm. For those people who did not get to attend the John Tucker webinar, there's a link now on the Ordinary Life website under resources. Tim Leatherwood, thank you Mm -hmm. for doing that. And uh, you can go to that link and watch the entire John Tucker presentation, which I intend to do probably sometime later today. Yeah, that'd be fun to go back and watch. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. I can put it on the front page of the website too, and link to it in the podcast summary so that people can. That would be great. That that would be great because my technical the the technology that is out there has outstripped my technological competency. Just want to remind really you, sir, appreciate- that you actually walked me through uploading something onto the website the other day. Okay. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm grateful for Richard Wingfield to tell, for telling me one day that it wasn't that I'd gotten technologically incompetent, which is how I feel, but that technology is just so outstripped us. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, as you know, as you know, well know, because you're the head of the steering committee, Ordinary Life is going to begin reopening for in-person attendance on the first Sunday in June. And I have been very much an observer mm-hmm. of what is going on in the larger church, St. Paul's, about reopening, which is going to start on Pentecost Sunday, which is in just a few weeks. And um, man, there's a lot to deal with to do that. I mean, a ton of stuff to deal with and um i i tell you in the in the psychology blogs and journals that i read and and get um spiritual direction journal and so forth um there's a lot of talk about the ambivalence that people have about re-engaging yeah, uh, we have already received an email from one longtime, very uh, active in-person participant at Ordinary Life that this person is not willing to come back now after reopening and that they will remain socially distanced for the foreseeable future. And I think we're going to see a number of people fall into that category. Um in in response to sort of COVID stuff or just kind of also how our bodies are habituated? Do you think it's both and? Our bodies I think are... it's both. I yeah. think it's both of those. I mean, the, the word that is, uh, the word that's appearing in the psychology literature is languishing. Mm. People during this last shutdown period of time have begun to languish, meaning that they, they don't have the social interactions. They don't stay actively engaged. Um, I don't think that I personally left my house at all yesterday. Yeah. I don't have plans for doing that today. Yeah. Um, I found out uh, yesterday in a staff meeting that St. Paul's will not reopen for 
regular business hours, mm. which is meaning five days a week from eight until five or six or later, um, because we have a lot of nighttime events, St. Paul's will not reopen for that schedule until the first Sunday, first Monday after Labor Day. So that's the second week in September. So we're still facing a long future of partial schedule for people working at home. Uh, I've talked to more and more people who work for big corporations who do not intend to go back to the office, yeah. which of course puts a huge crunch on building, leasing, um, renting, that sort of thing. Uh, to really put a strain there. Uh, and and there's, there's ambivalence about people feeling we're going too fast about reopening and people saying we're going too slow and people getting the vaccine, people not getting the vaccines. I heard yesterday that we're not going to reach herd immunity and uh, we're going to learn to live with the virus. It's well, it's, there's also been mutations. I think that one of the things we underestimate is the intelligence of a virus, right? That mm -hmm. it can adapt to and become stronger in situations. You know, it, it's, it, it, it is designed to replicate, <laughs> you know? And, and so that is something that I think brings up the question of what are we as a species willing to change about our behaviors? Because we can't just keep bucking up against the brick wall and trying to bust through it with um, more reactions, more vaccines. And I'm not, I'm not anti that medicine at all. Medicine saves lives. It's amazing. It's incredible. And we can't keep looking toward further and further and further developments in that field to save our lives. We also have to change some behaviors about the ways that we're engaging with the natural world and with each other to actually do it differently. And, and yeah. I, I think where I feel a little bit um, cynical is I don't know that when I think about herd immunity or herd behavior, what is the herd willing to do as a whole to shift. And I don't know that, you know, there's this story, gosh, sorry, I just got a flash of a story. There's this story that um, Brian Swim tells, tells so beautifully about horses evolving, you know, so horses and buffalo are in the same um, category of species, right? Um, and it is said that uh, buffaloes evolved from, from the sort of ancient horses, if you will. Um, they, they, these horses are running animals. They're not predators. They're, they, they, the wild horses could be prey, right? So they got chased by the predator and every time they sprint off into the distance to get away from the predator. But then there's just that one moment where this one horse goes, uh-uh, not anymore, turns around and lows its head. I think I've told you this story before and mm. says, I am gonna resist the predator. And eventually that behavior gets passed on. And so eventually a new species evolves, um, mm. you know, and I just wonder what, how many generations does it take for us as a species to kind of go, we're going to do something different. Um, and I, I think I really appreciate your wisdom and kind of going, I've been a, an observer, as you know, I can jump into anxiety and go, well, what are we going to do though? 
let's observe, but let's also have a plan. <laughs> and, um, and I think that the wisdom and observation is, can we also observe any changes in our behavior? And I don't know. Um, I, I, I read an article just this morning about how Japan has done better with the virus with, than any other country. Mm-hmm. And the author was explaining why that's true. One one of the things that's true about Japan is that um, they, as a society, have been used to wearing masks for a long time, and they are very compliant about the rule of mask wearing. In our country, we have had the mask wearing to become a political issue. Mm-hmm. So many people have not worn masks, and the science is pretty clear that that has contributed to the spread of the virus to people get it not wearing masks has contributed to the spread of the, the virus and people dying. And in this country, we have it as of this morning had over 560,000 people die of COVID. So um, we hear the news just yesterday that we're not going to get herd immunity. We're going to have to learn to live with this. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if we can learn to live with this as a more unified group. I don't know. I don't know. We, I, ha- I haven't seen our country split like this since the 60s. Mm, that's interesting. Vietnam. Yeah. Gosh. Um, well, certainly in my lifetime, I haven't seen this level of split. I don't think it's an unusual cycle. It makes sense to me why we arrived here. It makes sense to me that in a pluralistic society where people are trying to level out the voices, level out who gets heard and who gets airtime and who gets responded to, we're trying, I mean, if I could look at it positively, we're trying to achieve this thing called equity, mm-hmm. but we don't know how to do it because those who have been saying, here are the rules and here's who's included, are the ones also be, go, is being told, you need to do things differently. You need to make space. And so there's a lot of discomfort in that. Um, this is where I can zoom out really far and go, well, this is where it's helpful to understand something about um, cosmic evolution, mm-hmm. is that creativity comes from disturbance. Um, newness comes from disturbance. I guess Mm. the question is, is can that newness, can that creativity in the process, something gets destroyed? That's really the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So if you had a magic wand, would you have a way to fix this? Well, it's funny. Well, sure. There's lots of ways that in my kind of um, anxious ego hopes, I would go, oh, I wish I could fix this and this. But I then kind of, if I dig a little deeper, I say, no, I think we have to go through this. And I think if the magic wand had any ability to say, let's give everyone a little more stamina for the in-between. Lengthen the, 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 the time between what is happening and what we do about what's happening, just... So, um, you know, I've been thinking, and you and I have been talking about what, is, what, what do we imagine things will look like after ordinary life mm-hmm. does reopen? And um, you and I are coming to an end of doing a deep dive into the Lord's Prayer, and we're not quite sure what we're going to do in the weeks ahead. 
I have some ideas, but okay. um, I, I think that in the days ahead, we, I want ordinary life to be something that contributes to people flourishing. Yeah. And that flourishing, I think, is going to come when we courageously and concretely address the splits that have become apparent in the last year and a half, how we've fallen away from each other, we've fallen away from ourselves, Certainly, we followed away from nature, which is why the virus came to us in the first place. Um, and we're learning every day, every day about climate change and about how we're encroaching on the environment in ways that are ultimately detrimental to ourselves. And then, of course, I think that we have fallen away from um, uh, the sacred mystery and, and those four splits really have to be concretely addressed. We've got to learn to live with um, the contradictions that are part of life. Mm -hmm. We can't, we simply cannot forget or give up talking about the issues of, of systemic racism that still affect us so profoundly. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, those are the kinds of things I think we'll be talking about using in-depth psychology and the teachings of Jesus to, and, and as well as other teachers to help us experience some sort of healing for that which ails us. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I really think that to stay prescient and also to stay relevant, we can't ignore what is, right? And that's, I think did and we can't ignore how history has brought us to what is. So it's the both andness of of creating something new and it, learning from the history that shows us this is how you got yeah, here. Did, did you read Richard Orr's meditation this morning? I sure didn't. No. You want to tell me about um, <laughs> well, it's it's about the original sin of this country, the original yeah. sin that uh, of uh, the genocide that we did to Native American Native American populations, and for some weird reason that just come back in the news, mm -hmm. just in the the last little while. But I thought it was ironic that the the person who wrote the the bulk of what's in Richard Orr's meditation today spoke as a Native American to, I think if I read it correctly, she said what's in the DNA of the country. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, we are, um, we were, we were begotten in violence and yeah. genocide. Yeah. And there's, there ha there's something, so I'm, I'm trying to articulate this in my comprehensive exam, right? Is what 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 has brought us here? Um, and so often we think of the beginning point as that sort of 1609 arrival of the first settlers, right? But there was a whole life and livelihood and tradition already going on in this land before that moment. And it, and and one of the things that we can easily do is we can idealize that life and livelihood. Oh, they had it all figured out. They worked with the land. They worked with each other. They had this, 
um, you know, the Iroquois nation developed um, a system of council meetings that was shared by the five major tribes of the Iroquois nation. And that was actually a, 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 an inspiration for participatory democracy, right? That's a beautiful, mm. but, but there's no attention paid to that that came directly from Native American practices. Similarly, um, there were two Native American tribes in Texas in this area, in the Galveston Bay area, that were cannibals, you know, so it wasn't all like dreamy and peaceful and we love the land and we have ways of being with one another, but it's just to say that there was an entire livelihood happening that got erased, that got mm. set aside, and that erasure doesn't give us any sort of institutional memory about the land that we sit on, the land that we try to call our own, you know? And, and, and articulating that erasure is deeply uncomfortable. You know, I've told you this before, my first paternal ancestor was here in 1609. Wow. That's, there's a lot to reckon with there. <laughs> you know, he wasn't an abolitionist and he wasn't a, you know, so you, you, you just go, gosh, there's also, so, okay. Another thing that is really interesting to me is um, this guy, Resma Minikin's work. I've mentioned the book, my grandmother's hands. And he talks about how prior to this sort of founding of America, as we have articulated it happened after the Middle Ages in Europe. The Middle Ages were also, you know, this was a dark time in Europe. <laughs> this was a, a brutal time. This was an abusive time. This was like people were getting dismembered kind of time for going against the social norms or the religious norms. And this group of people who came to this new continent wanted to do it differently, but came with trauma in their bodies came with um, the trauma of, of watching violence. And so what they learned was to do violence in order to set something up, set something new up. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that America didn't just spring up out of the smoke in some magical way. It, it, it was founded by violence that preceded what we currently know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I want to read you something that one of my favorite writers, William Falk, wrote, and mm. it, I'm going to take it in a direction that I promise will surprise you. <laughs> he says, now our brains are assessing the risk of getting vaccinated versus going unprotected against COVID. That task was complicated with the discovery that six women out of seven million people who received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine developed blood clots a rate of 0.00008%. By way of perspective, an unvaccinated American's risk of dying of COVID is one in 1,666. So we paused that Johnson & Johnson vaccine mm -hmm. for that. I think Falk's point is well taken, but why don't we pause gun sales? Yeah. I mean, it's the height of hypocrisy and insanity. I mean, I understand why the Johnson Johnson vaccine was 
paused and all that. But we have all these people who are dying of gun deaths every day. Yeah. And we don't pause the sale of needless weapons being carried by irresponsible people on our streets. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing to me. Well, and you know what? What created the urgent need for the vaccine in the first place, though, was the refusal for people to do some simple things that would are protective. You you know, wearing a mask is one of them. Right. Social distancing is another. Mm -hmm. The refusal to do like we have a, a measure of control over that protection. And then, you know, and. So I, I think that it's even, we have to go back to even well, before the vaccine became necessary, so to speak. And that that was precisely what I was reading today about Japan. Mm-hmm. But that they put those things in place immediately. Yeah. And uh, Or New Zealand, culture, right? Uh, New, New Zealand has also re- been really successful in their, right. um, you know, I think people get to go to like live sporting events and be together. <laughs> You know, <laughs> um, so yeah. yeah. So I want to. I really want to focus on what we can say, what we can teach, mm-hmm. how we can behave that will contribute to people's flourishing. Yeah, and um, deal with the hesitancies that people have about. Uh, you know. Um, I think we need to give up on the notion of things going back to normal. If we mean normal as things were prior to the COVID, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that I will, from my perspective, that's actually the most terrifying um, response that I'm hearing. You know, it's in commercials, it's in, um, it, it's in commercials for getting vaccinated. It's in commercials for events. It's in commercials for, you know, it's, it's like, as we, as we get back to normal, and I just want to like scream and say, if we go back to normal, we're going to end up right back where we are. And, and I don't mean that just in the way of, of disease. I mean that in the way of all of the other reckonings that we've been facing too: gun deaths, uh, racial violence, um, what all of the things that have surfaced that that make us face a reckoning because we haven't. And so going back to normal is a different kind of erasure. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this is where I wonder, Bill, if this is where we can speak is just, what does it mean to return, but not to the same place where we started? Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a hero's journey. Yeah. I think we'll be feeling our way along for a while Mm -hmm. uh, to try to get some um, rhythm Mm -hmm. going that um, causes people to relax. And I'm going to keep using the word flourish. Mm -hmm. And uh, how can we aid each other doing that? You know, one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV, but the TV that I do watch, I notice that there are far more African-American people involved in commercials than there used to be. And that there are more uh, interracial marriages depicted in commercials than there used to be. Yeah. 
Yeah, I noticed that too. Um, and the optics of a thing are sometimes very different than the reality of a thing. Um, you know, I've said this before in different spaces, I think sometimes our ideas about who we are are further along than the actuality of who we are. Um, our ideas about freedom are broader than how we've actually um, done freedom and justice in this country. Mm -hmm. And um, there, there has been in the last year to five to 10 years, a large reaction from corporation to go, oh my gosh, if we don't have representation in our commercials and in our ads, we're going to lose business. So again, this is a bit cynical, but it's a bit of an economic choice. Um, what mm -hmm. is going to increase? And, and sometimes um, a, a guy that I know, Biko Mandela Gray, wrote one, in an essay that he wrote once, um, the ethical choice is almost always more costly. But sometimes we make the choice that will bring us greater flourishing in economics rather than great, greater flourishing in morality. So some of it is kind of um, an optical illusion. These The companies that are putting interracial folks um, in their ads and yes, it can make someone like me and Josh feel seen in the world like, oh, hey, that, they look like us. And maybe we're going to be more inclined to buy an Amazon Alexa because there wasn't, you know, <laughs> because interracial people use that. But, but, but is Amazon Alexa really doing a deep dive into their practices of injustice or, you know what I'm saying? So the optics of something are often economic and motivated by economics, I think. I just sound oh, so yeah. cynical, don't I? <laughs> but. Yesterday I was in the kitchen um, getting ready for the evening meal. And I said something to my beautiful bride about, I don't know what we were talking about. I swear to you, I did not use the word Alexa in my speech, but I do have an Alexa device in my mm -hmm. kitchen. And as I was speaking to Sherry, Alexa came on and joined the conversation. I am not making this up. She yeah. said, if you would like to know more about this, I can tell you that. And then she gave some statistics about something or the other. And then she said, William, is that helpful? <laughs> I didn't know what to say. <laughs> we're, being, we're being taken over. For sure. I mean, it is there, there is in, you know, Ilya Delio talks about this so often is that we already are cyborgs. We already are kind of these, this, we already are operating in and among and with AI, artificial intelligence. Um, we watched a movie with my kids the other day. Um, oh gosh, the Mitchells, Something in the Mitchells, I'll have to, I'll have to look it up, but um, it's, a, it's a wonderful animated movie about a kind of quirky family who, in an attempt to kind of bond, drives across the country to take their daughter to college. You know, and the daughter is just like, why can't I just fly? I just want to get there. But in the event of this journey, the world is taken over by intelligent robots. And this family, the Mitchells, has to sort of, it becomes the sort of heroes who, um, learn how, who know how to save the population from the robots. And, and, but the, and it's funny and cute and really heartwarming as this movie is, there's an element of like, oh, <laughs> they're, we're you, being taken over by robots. And are these please, robots please. going to have 
emotions and intelligence and an IQ, you know? Will you please, please send me the name of that movie? I sure will. In fact, because I want to watch it. Yeah. I was watching, a, 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 I record two programs. Uh, I would say I take two programs that would show how old I am. Uh, I record two programs that I watch on a fairly regular basis. I record the Daily Show with Trevor Noah and I record the Stephen Colbert program. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the kind of safe ways I get my news and I don't watch much else. Um, and so watching Stephen, uh, Trevor Noah the other night, he reported that Citizen Kane, which is considered one of the greatest movies ever made, and I have watched Citizen Kane at least four or five times. I'm a huge Orson Welles fan. For one thing, many people are not aware of this, but Orson Welles was a magician. I didn't and, know that. Yeah. yeah. And <gasps> so I love I love that part of his life and performance and that sort of thing. Um, and they said that, that Citizen Kane had been replaced by another movie. Paddington 2. And I had never seen Paddington 1 or Paddington 2, but I have remedied that situation in the last 48 hours and watched them both. I did not, I would not have known when I watched Paddington 2 that I was watching cinematography excellence, huh. but it was a great entertaining story. I'm still musing on its its meaning yeah have you seen it well i've seen paddington one i have kids so <laughs> but we haven't seen the second one and i think that's so funny that it's you know getting so much replace, attention yeah <laughs> replace citizen yeah. king well trevor Great noah God. had some funny skit about uh, 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 being in paddington and having a conversation with paddington the other day too so i wonder if that <laughs> yeah i may need to revisit that it's, it was really, it was really, really well done and, and, and quite touching yeah. about how taking uh, someone in and fighting for their freedom transformed a family. And, it, you know, there are probably other uh, lessons to be gained from it, but I think it's a great story. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, the, this, this is your, gosh, I don't, how am I going to articulate this? Um, I've got kids who are entering the preteen years, um, nine, 10, and 11. And um, I'm interested in the content that kids' movies, books, and even comic books are taking on right now, right? So the movie that I was, that we watched, that I was trying to remember the title was, it just came to me is the Mitchells versus the machines. Um, and, and the content of taking this on, what does it mean to be uh, in relationship to technology? The content of taking on in Paddington, how to um, take someone in and fight for their freedom. These are really complex ideas that kids are learning to sit with. I had um, my oldest son say to me the other day, mommy, I'm really starting to question reality. I don't remember ever saying that when I was 11 years old. I might've, I was kind of precocious, but I don't remember ever saying that. 
at 11 years old. And so there's a part of me as a parent who goes, gosh, I have not been here before. I have not lived here before. My childhood doesn't speak to some of the things that are coming up, not just in my particular family that is interracial, but in the, in the world that is pluralistic, more dynamic and more, um, I don't know if it's more inclusive in actuality, but it definitely is more, we see more representation as you say, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that representation is equaling inclusion, but all of these images are out there and kids are grappling with deeper level things, ideas about who mm -hmm. belongs and who doesn't um, than I remember grappling with at this point. It could be very much about me being kind of brought up in a very sheltered white upper middle class home, but I don't know. Mommy, I'm starting to question I, I, reality. I, I think we're living with a different level of cognitive awareness mm -hmm. in young people today. I am currently seeing um, a 17-year-old for, I'm going to call it spiritual direction. Mm. He is one of the smartest people I have been around. I mean, Academically, he is just brilliant. Now he doesn't have a lot of life experience, mm -hmm. and you have. There's no way that you can, I think, move into the second half of life without getting there. Yeah. You know, you can't. You can't make a, a, a helicopter flight from stage one to stage nine, or stage six, whatever growth model you're living. You, you have to go through all of them, but. In the conversation we recently had, he said to me, you have to keep in mind, I was not alive when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've always lived in a post 9-11 world. Yeah. And that affects these cognitive structures, uh, particularly uh, about issues about safety. Yeah. Than people who lived in the world prior to 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we remember when we didn't have to take shoes off <laughs> at an airport when security mm -hmm. was basically like, a, you look okay, come on through, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that kids are assaulted with a lot more information um, at such a fast pace and to integrate it is really, really painful. Um, and it makes me, gosh, you mentioned 9-11. Um, I, I, I brought this with me to our podcast just in case it fit in, but the other day, um, when I was sitting with you, you mentioned the book, one long river of song, um, mm -hmm. by Brian Doyle that Matt, I think gave to you, uh, Matt Russell. And I, this image and his, one of his sort of meditations, I think of them as kind of meditative writing, um, about, 9-11, this, this short called Leap. And mm -hmm. he writes about this couple flinging themselves out of a window, holding hands. They know where they are headed and that is death. But that this one last act of ridiculous love of holding hands in the face of terror. They might not have been married. They might not have even known each other, but in that moment, this one last act of hope. Let's hold hands. 
And that was this the image is so powerful to me right now in this moment. And I'll read a little passage from it here. But the reason that that image is so powerful to me in this moment is because we are clinging, looking for, dying for hope. We're like gasping for it. And there's so much to show us that we should think otherwise, that maybe we shouldn't hope. And yet as a species, we are so optimistic <laughs> about mm -hmm. what we can achieve and what we can do. But mm -hmm. there's this piece, so I'll read this little part if it's okay. He writes, their hands reaching and joining are the most powerful prayer I can imagine the most eloquent, the most graceful. It is everything that we are capable of against horror and loss and death. It is what makes me believe that we are not craven fools and charlatans to believe in God, to believe that human beings have greatness and holiness within them, like seeds that open only under great fires, to believe that some unimaginable essence of who we are persists past the dissolution of what we were to believe against such evil hourly evidence that love is why we are here. It's so beautiful. So and if beautiful. people are listening, do not know the source. The book is One Long River of Hope by Brian Doyle. One Long and River of Song. I, One Long River of Song by Brian Doyle. And I've been reading like two brief chapters. They're like two or three minutes yeah. each every morning as part of my spiritual practice. Yeah. So I, I, you read something. I want to read something. Go I for wrote it. something. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> yeah. The day will come when after harnessing space, mm. the winds, the tides, and gravitation, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And on that day, for the second time in the history of the world, we shall have discovered fire. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, written in 1936, mm -hmm. a year before I was born. And mm -hmm. we're going to talk about that line this coming Sunday in Ordinary Life. Yeah. And the, and the translation of Eugene Peterson, yes, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, again, uh, John Tucker's on the Ordinary Life website under resources. If you want to hear somebody talk about the theology of the future, uh, listen to what he has to say. It's really worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll okay. link to it. Okay. Bye Thanks, bye. Phil. See you soon.